Hello, Jeff here, co-founder and editor at Private Education Policy Forum. You're about to hear a recording from an event we held at London's Hamilton House, home of the National Education Union, on the 14th of September 2021. It discusses the relationship between UK private schools and politics, with education journalist Fiona Miller in the chair, and Navara Media's Ash Sarkar, low-cost private education expert James Tooley, author and journalist Robert Fakake, who has written a book about private schools, and Conservative peer Lord Ralph Lucas, who leads the APPG on independent education. I hope you enjoy listening to this event as much as we enjoyed putting it on. Feel free to check out our other work at www.pepf.co.uk. You can also support us and our work with a regular donation if you wish. Now, over to Fiona and the panel. Welcome everybody and thank you to the Private Education Policy Forum for doing organising this debate because I think one of the things that's happened with the past 18 months and COVID is that a lot of very important education issues have come to the surface but a lot of other ones have been pushed to the side. So, example, we've, for example, we've had a great argument about exam results and private schools have surfaced in that discussion, but nobody's actually questioned whether they should be there or not. Um, so, I think we need, it's good that we're getting back to some of these bigger sort of systemic issues. It's, this is not a new debate, of course. In fact, I've been going back and reading the history today. So, I think I would say it's probably about 200 years that people have been arguing about whether we should have private schools or not. And, in fact, the debate at the moment is very, very low-key compared to what it's been in the past, so I think one of the things we want to do today is try and think about how we can raise the profile of this discussion. And you're right that politics and politicians are absolutely critical to it. I'm sure I'm not alone here of having conversations with politicians, asking them why they don't do anything about private schools, because that's a question we all get asked a lot. And I, would, I was thinking today about the sort of responses you get. You get the sort of weak defence. Oh, you know, they're meritocratic. Everybody can potentially get to a private school. There are people who've you know, with Hackney postcodes at City of London, that sort of thing. The second one is the sort of head in the hands and, oh, don't raise it, it's too politically difficult. And the third one is, well, I completely agree with you, but you know, I had to send my son to Westminster because, and then the reasons come why they couldn't, you know, live by their supposed principles. That said, I do agree that this is an absolute political quagmire, and I think most politicians would think there are more important things to do than get bogged down in abolishing private schools. That doesn't mean we do nothing, though. So I think the purpose of tonight's debate is to talk about what we might do, which was a more sort of finessed and subtle approach to changing the system to make it better, and what we're going to do about the fact that, you know, Eton has still produced more prime ministers than the Labour Party. And that's an absolutely stunning statistic, isn't it? Um, is that a problem to, with Eton or the Labour Party? Well, you can tell us later on, but I mean, that is, it, whatever way you cut it, it, is a, it is an embarrassing and shameful situation to be in, I think. Now that I've obviously laid my, cut, <laughs> my colours to the mask now, so I'm going to introduce the rest of the panel. Um, and Lord Lucas is up there, who's a Conservative peer, Vice Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for Independent Education, and owner and publisher of the Good Schools Guide, which everybody will be familiar with. Um, I'm going to go back to my far left now, where Ash Sarker, who everybody will know from being a regular guest on the Moral Maze and other TV and radio programmes, is an activist, academic and a journalist, the senior editor at Navara Media. Robert Vercake, who's written this brilliant book, Posh Boys. If you haven't read it, I would thoroughly um, advise doing so because it gives you a very, very readable run through the history of the debates about private education and what has and hasn't happened over the last 200 years or even the last 
thousand years. I think you started in the Roman times, didn't you? Oh, I did, but uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and James Tooley, who is a low-cost private education specialist and professor of education and entrepreneurship and education policy and vice-chancellor at the University of Buckingham. So welcome, everybody. Um, now, we've got a very, very modern way of doing this, which is a combination of questions to the audience, which I think were going to be on the screen, but won't be now, because we've got Lord Luth up there. Um, sort of short, snappy questions, which the panel will get to discuss. And then at the end, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask questions and, and say what you'd like to say. So I'm going to start with the first question, which, which is, is private school culture corrosive or constructive to political or public life? Ash, do you want to start? Um, for me, this is not so much a question of culture, which I have no experience of, but it is a question of how this affects the composition of public life and the way in which it entrenches uh, class inequality in public life. The, the numbers speak for themselves. As you said, 85% um, of British prime ministers to date have gone to fee-paying schools compared to 7% of the population, 74% uh, of senior judges, 59% of permanent secretaries in the civil service. So what we're seeing with this over-representation of the privately educated in public life is essentially a stranglehold on the institutions which govern us, which uh, shape and dictate our norms and our values, which run society. And I think sometimes we come at this question from the perspective of being privileged and what choice should you have and what should you be able to do for your child and wouldn't you pay any money to give them the best experience they could possibly have and I actually want to come at this from a slightly different angle which is what are the 93% missing out on in terms of an opportunity to shape the way society is run from the very top so it's not a question of uh, private school culture I've got a lot of thoughts about um, how messed up it is to say to your child, I don't want you educated alongside 93% of the population. Um, but ultimately, the outcomes, I think, are fundamentally incompatible with the values of fairness, meritocracy, or equality. Thank you. Robert? Um, yeah, I'd obviously agree with all that, actually. Um, but I would, all, I would start by... Looking at the question of um, what is private school culture, um, before we can say whether it's corrosive or not, and I think that pri private school culture is—I mean, if you, as Ash says, you've never been to a private school, then it's it's a bit tricky to uh, identify and, and examine the, the, the problems of, of the culture. But you know, I first started examining it when someone called me—it was an insult—a minor public school boy, and I didn't. I didn't know what that meant. And it took me, you know, sort of 10 years to work out, you know, what that, what that really means. First of all, you've got to know what a, you know, what a public school is, and you've got to know that there are within the public school structures there are um, other public schools which aren't considered quite as good as, as um, the top sort of Clarendon public schools. And then you have to sort of place that against your own education and and then you begin to look at it from um a, a very critical point of view because you realize that people are spending money to advance their own children's life chances at the expense of your own and surely that goes to the very essence of what is corrosive in in public life almost you know is it not almost corrupt to be able to say look i've got enough money um, 
and therefore I have bought the right to make my child's life better than yours. And I think it is corrosive and it is corrupt when that sort of filters back into the community. And people start looking around their own communities and realizing that the, the newspaper editors, the bankers, um, the professionals, these are all people who've been whisked out of the community, educated in gilded, segregated communities, and then parachuted back into the community to take these sort of top influential posts that jobs that influence, have an influence over your lives. And I think the corrosive, the real corrosive problem is when, um, as Ash mentioned, when it, when it undermines democracy. Because if you feel that the people who are running the country or running your life or running your community don't actually have anything to do with you and your values, then you start thinking, well, perhaps democracy isn't working. I haven't got enough money to send my children to private school, so I can't affect things, so I won't bother voting. I think that's what it comes down to. It undermines democracy. That's why it's corrosive. Lord Lucas, would you like to respond to that? Mm -hmm. I think that the left does itself down by not realising the extraordinary achievements that it has chalked up in my lifetime. Uh, the, uh, I don't recognize now a private school culture. I very much recognize it uh, in people my age and a bit younger. Uh, but in the pupils at school now, no, I think that the advance of left-wing thought, the achievements in terms of opening up universities to the idea that they should be uh, have a access and equality at the front of their recruitment, uh, doing the same with with big firms. That that has had a concomitant change in attitude and the outlook of parents. And I don't agree with Robert at all. It's not doing other people down to want to educate your child well. I think that's a fundamental good. Uh, I don't think educating my child well hurts anybody else. I want other people's children to be educated well too. Uh, and if we're all well educated, then we're in a much more equal position. But that fundamental motor of parents wanting their children to be well educated uh, is, I think, what lies at the core of potentially generating equality. It is inequality. It is up to the government and up to us as a society to make sure that that isn't what actually happens. And uh, I hope part of our discussion will be, this evening will be which of the ways of doing that we focus on next. But no, you've made a tremendous difference to this country over the past 50 years, and I think you ought to be proud of it. James? Yeah, I agree with much of what has been said already, and we can get into the fairness side and no doubt Let's draw that out in a moment. But let, let's, not, let's not be mistaken. Private schools, which come in a variety of forms, including the minor public schools that we've heard about already, private schools are a huge success story um, in, in, in this country and indeed overseas. And, and the figures just speak for themselves. Over two-thirds of British Oscar winners were educated in the private sector. Kate Winslet, Olivia, Olivia Colman, two-thirds of British Nobel Peace Prize winners 
uh, Nobel Prize winners were educated in the private sector. Radio for influential women, 42%. Rugby union, 35%. Cricket, a third. Private schools are doing something well. They're doing something right, which is why people are attracted to them, why parents are attracted to them. So for me, uh, that's about public life, of course. For me, the issue is not, is private school culture corrosive or constructive to public life? It's what the hell are state schools doing and why are they not doing better? Is state school culture corrosive to public life? I would probably say it is. And then it comes to the political life. The political life. Here, I defer to the those who wrote the um, 1948 Declaration of Human Rights. And I think all of us in this audience, I think, would hold the, the writers of the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 would hold them as, as being, they, they would know a tool thing about what is conducive and constructive to public life. And the famous um, uh, Act, Article 26 on education states very clearly, as we all know, about the, the right to education, and it goes on the little-known paragraph three of this, says parents have the right to choose the kind of education that should be given to their children. And the Pakistan representative had, had introduced this because it was essential to guarantee freedom. You couldn't just have state education. It was essential to guarantee freedom for parents to choose education a quote, a principle flagrantly violated by the Nazis. And so for our public life, our political life, of course we've got to have private schools. If anyone seeks to ban them or circumvent them or curtail them, then they are working against the fundamental human right to education. The human right to education includes the right to private education. Well, there's certainly a lot to pick, to pick up on there, but I, I'm, I'm going to move on to the, the next question that we're going to discuss, we'll have time to come back to some of these points later, and that is whether state schools are safe in the hands of those who have never attended them. Ash, do you want to start? Um, I think it's possible to take this point slightly too far and say that everyone in politics has to have direct experience of the thing that they're managing, and I think that we need to be wary of that. There's lots of ways in which you can be qualified to uh, be an education minister, for instance. But it doesn't escape me that during the austerity years, you had a majority of ministers within the education department having attended private schools. Um, it's easy to make this kind of decision when you don't have the same kind of emotional attachment, you didn't feel the benefit of going into uh, the state school system or possibly attending a comprehensive yourself. And I really want to come back on one of the things that James has said about the so-called problems of, of the state school system and state school culture. Now, there are going to be lots of people in this audience who think that I'm probably not a great advert for the comprehensive system. Um, but having attended one, I think that a comprehensive school, and I also went to a grammar for sixth form, so I've got some points of contrast here. Having attended a comprehensive school, it can be the best of society in a microcosm which is a true melting pot between classes and races and people from different kinds of uh, immigrant backgrounds as well. You've got children being treated as equals. And best of all, you've got the exact same treatment for um, you know, a mediocre post student as you do a mediocre working class one. Whereas if you go to Eton, the working class ones have to be exceptionally smart, whereas everyone else just has to be exceptionally rich. Um, that seems to me to be an awful message uh, to send to children. 
looping back to the point about our state schools safe in the hands of people who didn't attend them, I think it's also quite possible to be someone who went to a state school who suffered under uh, funding cuts and not enough resources and to buy into the demonization and pathologization of those students and to say this is exactly why the state school is bad. You know, they're full of you know, feral runts running around stabbing each other in the eye with compasses and stuff like that. So I don't buy this argument that you have to have direct experience of the thing, but I do think that politics would be better if it wasn't so dominated by people who went through uh, these engines of class inequality. I totally disagree with Ash. I think, um, I think it's, a, it's a crying shame if those politicians were looking after the state school sector have not been to state schools. I think it's absolutely essential that they should go to state schools and look, look and if you haven't been to a state school, then um, you really sh shouldn't be in charge of them. I, I think you know. So you were you were having a caveat there. I think absolutely, it's disgraceful if your secretary of state for education is a private school uh, boy or girl. And um, Ash is a great advert for comprehensive schools. Um, maybe I am too. But I disagree with her characterization of what it was like to be in a comprehensive school. She describes a true melting pot of all different classes and so on. Well, the comprehensive school I went to in East Bristol, it was a working class area, and it was full of working class boys and girls. And I certainly didn't meet any middle classes in the school that I went to. Um, because there's such a thing as house price selection there's a certain thing called uh, you know, geographical uh, communities which are not mixed in the way you've described, Ash. And uh, maybe some schools are like that, but in other schools, no, it's not like that at all. You, if you're in a comprehensive school and you come from a working class area, you're likely to mix only with working class kids in that area. Now, this is one of the things about fairness of the private sector, of course. Is it fair that some people can extract themselves from that? It's not particularly fair. Um, but if you abolished private schools, which as I've said before would be offending the human right of education, if you abolished private schools, that type of person would, would exclude themselves anyway. You've got selection by house price. I've got the figures here somewhere. Um, in London, an additional £71,000 parents are willing to pay in order to go to a better state school. Um, in the rest of the country, about £45,000. So I disagree with Ash. Actually, the more important question to me is not are state schools safe in the hands of those who've never attended them, but are schools safe in the hands of the state? But no doubt that's for another time. Lord Lucas, I've got another quick, quick question. I'm going to ask you all at the end of this round. Well. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm somewhere between Ash and, and James on this. I think it's possible uh, for someone who's in charge of uh, it was the Secretary of State for Education to have gone to a, a private school and still do the job well. It's not as it's it's harder um, because you've got to put in a lot of work to really understand what it's like. But then you have to generally in politics anyway, really try and understand what other people's needs are, because most of the people who get through in politics one way or another, certainly by the time they've got through, are are earning a reasonable amount of money and living a reasonable life. Uh, and if you're to look after the whole society, uh, then you've got to have, you ought to be someone who's capable of taking a broad view. I do think it's very important that a ruling political party has a very broad spread of people within it. 
uh, I think both major political parties have uh, suffered from that and suffered from deficits in that in recent years. And it's something we should try and do something about. Uh, this question would be um, really easy to answer if Gavin Williamson had been to a private school, given the uh, <laughs> dire you know, state of mm. our state schools at the moment. Um, so that's a bit tricky. He didn't. But the man in charge of the Treasury, um, Rishi Shunak, he did. And it's no coincidence that this month the Institute for Fiscal Studies produced a report saying that our state schools have, have been so um, badly underfunded that state school children are receiving less money per pupil than they were 40 years ago. And by contrast, we all know that private schools have been seeing their fees escalate to the point where it's almost, you, know, you need obscene amounts of money to send your children to a private school, you know, 40, 50,000 pounds. Um, so surely this tells, tells us that people who have never been to a state school and can't understand what it's like to control a class of children where some of them have attention difficulties purely because they are hungry, you know, they haven't had breakfast that morning, or they, they come from a, a family of, you know, their parents are illiterate and they simply can't help them with their homework. And these are the sort, these are the sort of school, life school experiences that you simply do not have if you haven't been to a state school. But I think, you know, are schools, uh, are our schools safe in the hands of people who, who haven't never attended them? Um, I agree, I agree, with, agree with, with, with James and um, Lord Lucas in the sense that you don't have to, you perhaps don't, um, <clears throat> you can try and understand, you can make a difference. Um, but I think ultimately, if you end up taking a responsible role in the um, social policy of education in this country and you send your own children to a private school, then I think that says a bit more about you, actually. Um, I think it says a lot about David Cameron, who ended up, when he, when he was um, you know, preparing for, to be prime minister, sent his children to, to state school. As soon as uh, he got kicked out, he took his kids out of state school and put them in back into the, the private school sector. Um, you know, with Boris Johnson, we don't even know how many children he's got, never mind which schools he sent them to. That's, that is a, you know, it's a fundamental kick in the teeth to our state schools. If you, dis, you, you choose to send your child to a private school you dis, and then take a responsible position in determining the policy of state education in this country, you're saying, my, it's the, I, I, I wouldn't send my kid to a state school, but I'll certainly tell you how we can achieve you know, better state schools in this country. I think that's right. And that also applies to, by the way, the um, Chief Inspector of Schools, Amanda Spillman. Went to a private school herself, St. Paul's, sent her two daughters to St. Paul's, and goes around the country telling state heads how they are supposed to run their schools. Um, so I, 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 I agree with James. You do need to have been to a state school to really understand how state schools run and what's the best policy 
to be um, used to um, make them even better. But just, if, can I just follow up on that point very quickly? If, if parents, politicians send their children to private schools, do you think that has an impact on the way these report, this, this debate goes in public? If, if a politician sends their child to a, to a private school, do you think that has an impact, all of you, on the way this, this, this debate plays out in public? Um, I mean, lots of famous politicians from Labour and Conservatives yeah. send their children to, to private schools, don't they? Or, or grammar schools, Harriet Harman, Diane Abbott, mm. famous um, Chakrabarti, um, and so on. And... Um, Look, I, I'm not. I'm not against people sending their children to private schools. I don't like hypocrisy, but you know, I also have weaknesses, and hypocrisy is not the most serious of crimes. So, no. Ash, do you think it would be different if politicians are frightened of being accused of being hypocritical because of the decisions they've made about their own children? Do you think that has an impact? I mean, politicians being being hypocrites isn't exactly a news story. It's one of those dog bites man kind of news stories. <laughs> it's in their nature. I think that it's also something we should expand outside the, the realm of just going, you know, what schools did ministers attend and think about almost every facet of public life. When I went to Enfield County, Bang, bang. Um, when I went to Enfield County, I made friends with this girl. And she was really, really kind, really sweet, brought her home for tea. It turned out that my mom was her social worker, right? And then my mom had to have all kinds of conversations with me about what was going on in households like the kind that my friend was growing up in. And I had to learn a lot about kids who did not have the kind of stable upbringing that I had. And what was beautiful about that school is that we were educated alongside each other. We had some really wonderful dedicated teachers who poured time and love and care and commitment into that child. And we, we've stayed really close friends. Now, if you go back to those stats, which I rattled off about, you know, over 50% of, of senior journalists having attended fee-paying schools, or over 70% of senior judges, and then maybe the first time they come across somebody who was in the care system is when they're sentencing them or when they're writing up a new story about them. What do you think that lack of human contact and understanding and empathy does? So I think that the stakes of this are, um, it's not simply about policies and who's shaping them and coming up with them. It's about how all of these institutions function and are they capable of recognizing the humanity of people who didn't just not grow up in posh backgrounds, but also maybe grew up in really challenging and tough backgrounds as well. And so the, it's interesting that when we talk about, you know, social mixing, again, we tend to almost do it solely from the perspective of, of you know, middle-class people. But what we know from studies is that if you want to raise attainments, the more integrated school is by race, by social class, the better it is those kids who used to be left behind will do. It does them really well. Um, and so I think that from, from both perspectives, from what it means for those people who do have that head start in life and will have that head start in life, even if you abolish uh, the fee-paying school system and integrate it into, into the state system, that those people with that head start in life, I think, will behave better, will be kinder, will be more empathetic, will be more understanding if they've had to be educated alongside people who are less privileged than them, and will also raise the attainment um, 
of those people who came from those much more challenging backgrounds. But, but education isn't the only place people mix. You know, this, I mean, it's, it, where you, it's where you start. You well, know, but schooling, if, schooling you know. is compulsory. It's forced on us. We also mix in the marketplace, in the supermarket, mix in the church. How much chatting do you do in the supermarket with strangers? <laughs> you come to Buckingham. It's really friendly. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, so to say school could, should carry all the burden there, and then there are things like, you know, I, I went to the Boys Brigade and the Life Boys, and there are the Scouts, and there's all these other ways of mixing. I, but I totally agree with you, Ash. You know, this is, you know, you don't want judges to meet the, a, a person in trouble for the first time when he or she is sentencing. That's a disaster. Totally agree with all your empathy. Um, comment yeah and I just by the way I, I apologize I got very emotional just now and I don't hopefully it didn't come across but I, I, I was shaking with emotion when I started talking about um, my schooling um, it's funny how these things hit you some 45 years later <laughs> 10 years later yes quick from Lord Lucas do the personal choices of politicians matter for their own children I absolutely I think so uh, no you've got to yes you've got to do the best for your own children but you've got to answer for the choices you make uh, I, no, I agree with what Ash is saying about wanting judges to have experience of the lives of the people that they are, they are altering. Uh, I, I think she needs to get away from the 7%. It isn't the right figure. Uh, it's a, about 18% of children who are in independent sixth forms, uh, and that's, that's academically selected. So perhaps the right figure for people getting into top jobs is 25 to 30 percent, uh, somewhere around that level in terms of personal potential. Uh, Seven percent is, is, is not a truthful figure, uh, but nonetheless, even if you're one of that 25 percent in a reform system, you jolly well ought to have been given experience of the lives of the people you're sentencing. Otherwise, how can you do it? Uh, we don't live in that distant world anymore where uh, the, the upper classes set the rules and everyone else had to go by them. Uh, but how? Like, like and, go on and, and I think, I think you've got to get away from that. You've got, to, you, you, you've got to make sure that everybody shares a common set of understanding and values and part of that is in how do you educate a judge. Okay, I'm going to move on now to the next question which is, if private schools didn't exist, would the same people still rise to the top in politics? Robert, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, if private schools didn't exist, then obviously the same sort of people wouldn't keep filling this, the, the top jobs in, in our society. It, we would mean that um, we'd have a much more diverse representation of people from all sorts of different backgrounds instead of a disproportionate number of people, um, certainly in politics, who come from a very narrow background. We've kind of we've discussed this, haven't we? We've already touched on this idea that if you, if you haven't experienced the lives or lived with people um, who you are ruling, then you, 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 not only is it, is it bad for public policy, but you lose a lot of your credibility and perhaps respect from, um, you know, in these terms, the, the electorate. So... We would, we would certainly, representation would be greatly improved. The, the democratic process would be greatly enhanced. Be more faith and confidence in the system. That's got to be a good thing. We'd also get rid of what um, psycho, um, 
analysis have described as this sort of boarding school syndrome. I'm not going to identify any particular politician at all when I now um, characterize this syndrome, which is sort of a, a young boy stuck in a man's body, um, determined to repay the 500,000 pounds that his parents spent on his education by overachieving for himself and of absolutely um, little interest in what that means beyond his own ego. I mean, that's, that's, that's one type of private schoolboy. Um, not, saying, not saying it's all, but you know, do we really want you know, a win at all costs um, politicians um, leading us. Don't we, don't we want people who are prepared to do a little bit of public service? People are prepared to read um, a white paper from the beginning to the end, looking at the detail, scrutinizing it, and perhaps you know, turning up uh, legislation that works and is you know, good, for, good for everybody, not just, them, not just themselves. If we had people who were um, representative of the community, we would have much, much better um, politicians. And perhaps we'd also have, you know, maybe key workers. Remember key workers, how much the government enjoyed um, praising key workers. Perhaps we could have key workers as politicians, maybe you know, a few bus drivers, a few social workers, you know, a few nurses, a few police officers. Um, I think, you know, we, we, could, we could really do great things with um, not having such a narrow representative or over-representative of a, a politician in this country. Lord Lucas, you're in and around, well, maybe not at the moment, but in and around Parliament a lot. What, what do you think? Do you think if private schools didn't exist, the, the makeup of I think Parliament a, would be different? I think a lot of... A lot of the same people would, would come through. I mean, politics is full of the Ben clan, isn't it? I mean, you've got Melissa and Hillary, and now we've got Lord Stansgate in the Lords. And that's nothing to do with private schools. Uh, it's to do with tradition and service and, 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 and outlook. Uh, I think if you have been raised in a family that believes in public service, I think if you are comfortably enough off that you can... Uh, afford the uncertainties and risks of a polit political career, then and then politics is going to be something that attracts you. And I don't think that flow is going to be vastly affected by whether people go to to private schools or not. I do think we need to do something about the way in which political parties uh, select and look after their candidates. I think we need consciously, as has happened in other professions, to say, what barriers are we creating to, as Robert said, bus drivers becoming MPs, and why? Uh, and what are we going to do about it? And that's a very active process, for instance, in universities, uh, in their recruitment. All credit to the left for that. and. And we need to do it in political parties. But well, we can see the same sort of effect in the Labour Party, the lack of representation of truly working class people. Um, but it's internal to the parties. It's nothing to do with the schools. Well, that's an idea for your group. You could have a 93% in the House of Commons. 93% campaign in the House of Commons. James. Yeah. Um, would the same people rise same, to the top? Same rise to the top. Um, well, I think... 
Actually, Robert will correct me if I've got this wrong, but I think the greatest Prime Minister of my lifetime, and of, of everyone gathered in this room, um, I mean, she would have risen to the top if there were private schools in exist because she went to a grammar school, I think, um, didn't she, Margaret Roberts? Am, am I going to criticise whether or not Margaret Thatcher is the greatest Prime Minister <laughs> of all time? Uh, she was Margaret Roberts when she went to grammar school. Um, <laughs> but she, it, that's interesting because... Um, so she didn't go to Every single British Prime Minister has either been to a private school or sent their children to private schools, apart from one. Do you know which one it is? Margaret Thatcher. No. No, that's not true. Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. What? Sent their children to private schools. It's just... Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, and then, this is the question. There's only one elected British Prime Minister who either didn't go to a private school or sent his children to private schools. Or didn't. John Major. No, he sent his kids to private school. <laughs> no. Let's go through all the Prime Ministers. <laughs> It's one of it's one of it's um one of the Tory parties most uh, Teddies only because he didn't have any children. Yeah, I didn't have any children. It's <laughs> a trick question. I could apply to Teddy. If you had two children. Anyway, I was well, going to ask, was I, it I think, in the Crown? <laughs> I was uh, in the middle of an answer there. I think so. Yeah, the greatest Prime Minister of my lifetime. She would have gone. She would have risen to the top if private schools didn't exist. Her successor, also John Major, would have risen to the top, although he's a less great Prime Minister. Um, I, I actually I don't like this. Um, I don't like the way this question is framed. And actually, reading your book, Robert, which is an excellent book, by the way, if you haven't read it, you should get hold of it. It's a real page turner. Um, but it, it's just, and, and, and actually, when I listen to what I might call the left, you know, when I read your stuff and things, it's as if there's just one route, you know, as if there's the one route to the top, and that's the only thing that matters is getting to the top. And if we don't get there, then we can be envious and, and, and think it's all unfair. But there's nothing wrong, you know, in the, in the political sense of being a backbencher. There's nothing wrong. You can find huge fulfillment and, uh, uh, and so on, and, and you can become very famous, um, perhaps after you're dead, like Henry Chip Shannon is now incredibly famous for his diaries. He was a backbencher. He didn't rise to the top, but his career was incredibly successful. So the way this question is framed, and indeed in terms of the whole social debate, isn't it? I mean, I've got a great friend who's a gardener, and he's a gardener in the house of incredibly wealthy people who travel in helicopters between their different homes spread around the country. They are deeply unhappy and unfulfilled. My friend, the gardener, is deeply fulfilled and happy. Um, you know, there's not just this one dimension to happiness and fulfillment. And I think that's, I get the sense that's missing from this debate. And certainly I felt missing from your book, Robert. So people still rise to the top in politics. Yes, many will. But rising to the top in politics isn't everything. I've risen to the top in terms of academic life, haven't I? I'm the vice chancellor. I wish I was a professor, had freedom to write books and debate instead of being stuck, you know, doing a lot of the joyless tasks. And perhaps prime ministers and cabinet ministers feel the same. Perhaps they're doing it like I'm doing it, out of a sense of duty, not because they relish being at this top, as if it's the one place everyone wants to be. I suppose it's also about, not just about rising to the top, but is it a waste of potential talent if people from a more diverse set yeah. Backgrounds mm. don't get into not just politics, but lots yeah. of other walks of yeah. life. Ash, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're losing huge amounts of talent. When you rattled off those statistics about Oscar-winning uh, actors and, you know, people at Radio 4, I just think, God, how many voices are we losing here? Um, and, and an awful lot. 
Um, I think you're right. I think this idea of, you know, reaching the top of the pyramid being the only measure of success, happiness, and worth, I think is, is silly. Um, people live perfectly happy and fulfilling lives, serving their communities in all kinds of ways. However, going back to the point about, I think, which we all agree, which is we want to expand quality education for as many children as possible, if not absolutely all of them. How do you do that? The minute you have a barrier to a certain set of schools which is based on money, you are, I think, insulting that principle that best but should be absolutely available to every kid. So doesn't it depend on, what, how much money the school fees no, no, are? Hang, hang on a sec. I think that if you got rid of private schools, you would still have class inequality yeah. because you would still have all sorts of ways in which money can facilitate yeah. a better, you'd have worse inequality because you'd have to ban private experience schools. from from private tutoring to moving into better catchment areas yeah. for, for well-regarded schools. Those things exist. However, I think there's a difference between a system which has got loopholes and flaws, which can be exploited by better-off families, and you can work to mitigate and to, uh, you know, plug those gaps in funding or to, you know, restrict the ability to just move into a catchment area and snap up a place at a better school, and having a formal barrier on the basis of class, which is what fee-paying is. And, and, and spare me the stuff about scholarships, by the way, because if we had schools where the best regarded and some of the most successful schools were mostly for white people, but 10% or 20% of the places were theoretically open to kids of color, would we go, well, that's fine. That seems fair enough. We'd go, no, that's, that's, that's called segregation. And we wouldn't tolerate it on the basis of race. So I don't think that we should tolerate it on the basis of class um, either. I, I think that having that formal barrier is corrosive to our values as a society. I think that we can mitigate the unfairness and the impact of class in the state system as best as we can, and we can get rid of this formal barrier. But if you're feeling squeamish about the abolition of... of um, We're going to come on to that. Schools, We're going to come on to that in a minute. Well, I mean, I just wanted to see what, what you know, James would think well, we about... Will, we will be seeing that in a minute. Ooh, okay, it's but just quickly, before doozy. we move on to that, Robert, I mean, you've written a lot in your book about the professions and how it worked with the professions in the public schools. What is, what is the secret ingredient that means they people from private schools disproportionately rise to the top? Um, well, they, it's, uh, there's a sort of um, insidious network, isn't there, a, a play here? Because the schools invest an awful lot of money in their alumni societies. So, they're, you know, they're, they, they trade on their... They don't trade on their exam results. They trade on the ability to progress their um, pupils into top jobs. And these um, alumni networks are really good at doing that because you know, they invite... Um, people from the city, from the professions, to, to, to speak to their pupils, to um, invite them to contact these people in, in, in workplaces. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a, I think it's an insidious re recruitment process, and I think state schools ought to get involved. <laughs> okay, well, that, that's quite a good way into the next question, which is one minute each you've got on what reform solutions could open up politics. Ash. If you, I mean, one, I think abolish, all right, get rid of them. But if you don't want to do that, if you're a bit squeamish about that, then why not just have a cap, 7% on 
of places in Parliament, in government departments, at the BBC, can be for privately educated people. And let's see how quickly the fee-paying system falls apart. Because if the private schools didn't confer unfair advantage, no one would pay for it. Um, that's, I mean, I think that was less than a minute. Okay, George Lucas, one minute. Uh, what two reform things, solutions? Two things. One is, at election time, uh, market a political party as a team and not as a set of individuals so we can see what their overall makeup is like. Secondly, uh, allow state schools to offer parents what they want. N very few parents want to pay fees at the level they are now. If state schools would offer a few things that may really make the difference, like discipline and ambition and attitude consistently across the board, uh, then a lot more parents would choose state. James, reform solutions? Just for education. Uh, what reform solutions would open up politics? That's true, the question is yeah. ambivalent. But. I mean, reform solutions for education, well, just the converse of what Ash says, and I'd like to abolish state schools and have everyone going to private schools of varying prices. Of course, <laughs> I must tell you about the low-cost private school I opened in Durham and the thousands I've opened around the world. But in terms of politics in general, um, you need to change the voting systems, don't you? We want proportional representation. So small parties representing small interests, like mine, libertarians, they can win seats and make a difference. There you go. Robert? I think, um, yeah, if, if Ash's brilliant idea doesn't work and uh, these schools continue to um, over-represented over in um, top jobs in this country and I think we need to do other things so we need to look at the tax position of um, private schools so we need to abolish charitable status like I'd do that before we introduced um, actually seven percent rule actually I would I would abolish charitable status because I don't see much charity in sending um, or educating extremely privileged wealthy people um, and then giving these institutions tax breaks so if we if we impose VAT on school fees, we'd have one and a half billion pounds to plough into the state school system. So I would, I would certainly do that. I'd also remove all state um, subsidies, because at the moment, um, the state, I don't know if you know this, we, the taxpayer, subsidise private schools to the tune of 200 million pounds every year, sending army officers, children, diplomats, children, um, and various other um, Project. So I think begin with charitable status. That, if that doesn't reduce them to schools that, that are selling snob value and snob value only, then bring in Ash's excellent 7% um, cap. But 7% nationally, of course, would be 20% in London, wouldn't it? 20% in Edinburgh. Um, the... No, I, would, I, I, would, I wouldn't do it like that, actually. Okay, well, we can, <laughs> you can argue about the detail later. But I, I agree you. with you about charity status. It is gross. Yeah. Thank you very much, all of you, because the audience, I'm sure, will want to have a say on what is turning into a little manifesto now for dealing with private schools and whether you think it would work, wouldn't work, whether, whether you've got other ideas and whether you've got any questions for the panel. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Sorry, I should have said, if you, if you wouldn't mind just saying a little bit about yourself and your name before you ask your question. I've got the gentleman here and the chap at the back. Thank you. Thanks for that, Chair. That's a, that's a bit of a giveaway. I'm Mike Trace. I'm the chair of PEPF. Um, I was <laughs> remaining long last night. Um, I, I worked in the senior civil service for many years, and for the rest of the years of my career, I've 
organizations where you recruit large workforces to a lot of recruitment. Um, one of the basic tenets of what you do in the private or the charity sector, which I work in at the moment, is what is at the basis of a meritocracy and equality of opportunity is any opportunity is described what you need for that job or advancement, person specification, however you want to describe it, and you have an open competition for the people who can demonstrate that merit. That doesn't happen in senior civil service. Uh, you spoke earlier, or the panel spoke earlier about advancement in the senior civil service. Politics is a very different process, but advancement in the senior civil service, I experienced it, I watched it. The criteria by which you advance do not include do you understand what it's like to be on welfare? Do you understand what it's like to be in prison? <laughs> but I want my ministers, I want my senior civil servants, I want the powerful people who make decisions about that to first of all really care, but second of all really understand. So that would be the top line of the person's specification. And I think it hasn't been mentioned by the panel, but I think that's where a lot of this privilege circulates and continues, because the right person's specification Grammar school educated prime ministers. Has there ever yeah. been knowledge been a prime minister who was educated at a state comprehensive school? To your knowledge? Ooh. Um, no. No, there, no, I don't think there is a. That's a good one. Okay. What about um, what about Gordon Brown? Grammar school. Yeah. But anyway, so it's <laughs> it's. it's, it's, it's I'll, we'll continue the conversation no, later. It um, is a good question, and it's. Um, yeah. You know, the answers are different. What would you make of the proposal of, as a realistic uh, policy change of a policy in which private schools would have to take on something like 30 to or higher percent of full uh, bursary scholars from the most deprived aspect of the country? If we tie the charitable status to such a radical policy where there's a significant number of, of, of people from abject poverty or whatever. Is that for Lord Lucas? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, sorry, the uh, only about a third of what's said on the microphone is getting through to me, Chair. Could you? Uh, I think. Repeat? I think the question is: would, would if you if you up to the quota of dis disadvantaged pupils who could get into private schools on the through the scholarship routes, would that to, be a solution? To is that right? To thirty percent. To thirty percent. Uh, if, if that was something that uh, the state wanted to do, I think most private schools would welcome that. An awful lot of them would like to get back in much deeper touch with the state, but are not offered any way that they can do that. Uh, so um, Peter Lample has been pushing in that direction. He recruited a lot of schools who would like to move in that direction, but it requires a a pretty tough dialogue on both sides. I mean, you needed a good negotiation. You don't need something patsy like the assisted places scheme. You need a good hard negotiator from the left uh, so that the schools believe that this is something that will hold through the next Labour government and not be immediately overturned. 
It's really one of the real keys here, though, is how those children are selected, because if it's academically selective, as we know from the assisted places school, you've tended to get the sort of impoverished, <clears throat> you know, professional families who are getting in. I, I think you should start by offering these places to, uh, to, to children who are not with their families, to, to children who are in care. Uh, there are certainly some independent schools taking kids like that at the moment. Uh, it requires close cooperation with the local authorities to make it work, but I've, where I've seen it, I, I can see it does. Generally, these days, there aren't that many truly selective independent schools. Most of them have a pretty broad intake. Okay. Somebody may want to come back on that. David, you wanted to ask a question, yeah? I'm curious about the idea uh, of abolition of private education, because two points. You, you were talking about the need to withdraw charitable status, take away all the government subsidies that one way or another support schools. I understand that. Won't that just put up the fees and mean that even richer people, only very rich people, will be able to go to private schools? So the, that route of cutting them off by saying, well, you can't have subsidies. I'm not sure I can un I understand how that would be effective. And the other thing is the point about the 1948 Act. I mean, we know this government is immune to criticism when it breaks the law. But um, is it possible for, say, a Labour government actually to break Article 26 of the 48 Act? Would that not be a big problem? Can I just ask? So it's the 1948 Declaration of Human yeah, Rights. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I agree with, with you, David. I, I think it, it would be impossible for a, a Labour government to ban private schools without offending not just that, but every other human rights legislation since states categorically that the right to education encompasses the right to private education. So I, I, I agree with you there. But, but how did you say the Finns did it in the 60s? Well, well how did I mean, I, 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 I speak I, to the microphone? The, the Finns in Finland, they abolished fee-paying education, or, the, you, or they abolished oh, well, paying... So, so, so the, the Finnish model, I think, is... schools, they abolished no, fees. And that's, yeah, I, well. that's, I think, an important point to make, because I think, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a utopian ideal to have the state run every single school that operates in the country. I do you think there needs to be degrees of freedom of choice about the kind of education, including, yeah. even though I disagree with it personally, religious education. Yeah. Um, but the Finnish model, I think, is really important, because how they crafted legislation is that it banned fee-paying. Right, So you can have a, a privately set up school, um, but the condition is, is that they can't charge fees to do so. So I think that it would be entirely possible for Labour to introduce legislation in a way which doesn't contradict the 48 Act if it focuses on the fee-paying aspect. But I, look, I did English Lit at uni, not law, so I think you should seek better legal advice than mine. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I have taken legal advice about this, and yeah, I'm yeah. reliably informed by my brother, who's a lawyer, specialised in human rights, that it is actually very difficult to say to parents, you cannot pay for a private education. Yeah. But I've never understood why, and maybe somebody else can explain it, how the Finnish government managed to do it after 1948. Yeah, well, they may be broken the law. They may be broken the law. <laughs> I mean, well, no, Finland I don't know my way around Finland. One we, of the we've got it in things our own is that independent schools... We incorporated this into... Uh, Tony Blair brought all the European human rights yeah. legislation. But the right, the right to education isn't unfettered. I mean, it's, it, we, 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 we decide what sort of education our children receive, you know, 
all the time. We bring in laws to determine that you know, there's a certain, certain ideologies aren't taught within, sure. within, within schools. So it's, you know, there are obviously, and Parliament is sovereign, so... Uh, yeah. We, I we, don't we, think it is the 1948 Act. I think okay. it's a clause in the Human Rights Act. Oh, if it's the ECHR. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I come back on it, David's point about the schools becoming more expensive, though? Because this is probably something I would definitely agree with Robert on. I've read his, his book here. Private schools are in this arms race to, um, to uh, improve their facilities, to somehow compete with each other with, you know, all-weather soccer pitches and uh, uh, swimming pools, Olympic-sized swimming pools, and better and better theatres and so on. And that is a nonsense. I totally agree with probably every person in this room. That is a nonsense that the private schools are doing that. And so if the, their charitable status was abolished, and if they were forced to think about price, then they would stop competing in that way, in my view, and they'd start looking at what is essential to education rather than what are these frivolous things to attract the rich from Russia and, and, and China and, and this country. And, and you can deliver private education much more cheaply than the, the, the schools do. But my schools, as you know, with up north, £3,000 per year. £3,000 per year. We've got very different definitions of cheap, I think. <laughs> More, I said more cheaply, and well, if you want my cheap schools, then they're £100 a year, um, but they're in Ghana, Nigeria, Honduras, and India. I mean, whenever I dropped marks in an exam, my mum asked for a tax rebate, so... Mm -hmm. but, 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 but you're absolutely right, David. They're much too expensive. They need to be brought down in price. Our, can I keep... Amongst friends, the motto at my school up north is um, um, every expense spared. There you go. Just seeing, do you want to come back on any of the points you've heard? I, I think James is quite right that parents would be delighted if uh, there was VAT on school fees, schools would just spend less. Every school, every independent school has been through an exercise in how, can, how they can cut between a third and a half off costs because they thought they might have to through COVID. So, you know, it would just be enacting plans they have and they would off, they would spend less and parents would pay the same fees or thereabouts but you know we would love to see some progress towards the sort of fees James is charging uh, which is about half what the state spends and it's a real question as to why does the state what does the state do with the three thousand pounds a year that James doesn't need we don't know who's going to his schools but I'll ask him in a minute maybe a different <laughs> sort of group of pupils but anyway we're going to have a question from a woman and the Gentleman at the back after that. Oh, yes, yeah. I'm a woman. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my name is Madeline Holt, and um, I just wanted to share with you um, insights from this project I've been running now for eight years in Camden. Um, what we do is we bring families from the local comprehensives into feeder primaries to talk honestly about their experience at school. It's called Meet the Parents. We originally brought in parents, but then we discovered the students were so brilliant because they don't bullshit, basically. So I've just come from one event in Clerkenwell, and there was a very high level of neurosis about what to do about schools. But what I think is really interesting is I think that parents' attitudes are changing, and I think that mental health issues are really critical. Because in that time, in those eight years, I think mental health amongst students has become such uh, a talking point amongst parents. Um, we, know that we don't have enough evidence about it, but it was seen that it's becoming much worse. I personally think the exam system is one factor in it. 
So what we discuss is things like, what are the benefits of staying in the community? Uh, what are the benefits of not schlepping to some school miles away, then coming back, not having local friends, having three hours of homework? The benefits of empathy, which the gentleman over there talked about. And now the political pressure on Oxbridge and Rossborough universities to take more uh, students from state schools and employers seeing the benefits of a really diverse workplace because it's, it's more productive. So we're arguing, you know, from many points of view, but one of them is quite an individualistic point of view, the same defense. Actually, we think your kid will have a more successful life in every you know, meaning of the word if you stay in the community. And we're winning people over. We've got evidence from um, Queen Mary University of London that we are winning parents over to stay local. That's a really good point. I think, is, I think that is so important. Yeah. I really do. It's about the community. If, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you pay to send your children away from the community, you're opting out of the community. I know James says it's all not all down to the schools. You do chat to people in supermarkets. And so many times it's happened to me, you suddenly think that your child's friendly with so-and-so and your family um, are mixing in the same circles. And the next day, they're not at the football match. Where's Johnny gone? Oh, he's gone to this other school somewhere else. Uh, we haven't seen the family. And that's the end of them. And it's not just it's not just the it's not just the family. It's the you know it's the, the wealth and the and you know lots of these families they, they have wealth and they can bring this wealth to the community, but they don't. They want to they want to give it to an, uh, you know an institution, a charity, which is in the business of promoting the wealth and enhanced lifestyles of people who are already incredibly privileged. So it just seems a bit. I, I think okay, we'll take one other about, question, then we're like I'll sorry. come back to the panel. Sure, um, sharp questions, please. Do we want to get yeah, as many as possible? Hi, I'm Jamie. Um, I had a question about building on what the gentleman said earlier about choice and something that James said earlier about the fact that parents are willing to spend £75,000 to move children into a better catchment area. Even if you abolish private schools to get the best lawyers in, we've managed to abolish private schools, and that's something I agree with. There's still going to be massive amounts of inequality from the area a child is brought up in. Postcode is a major predictor of wealth in the end. I was wondering if anyone on the panel had thoughts on the catchment area system we have in Britain and how to avoid inequality coming from schools just being in a better area than other parents they can afford to buy in that area to get their children into those schools. Mm. I, would, uh, I, would, um, I, would, I would simply impose on that, and it's, it's an interesting problem, you know, and it is, it's ob obvious, isn't it? I mean, if you, if you abolish private schools and, you in, and you know, you've still got state school privilege through, through wealth, I would introduce a, a lottery system. So, you know, your, your child will go to the school that... Um, you win in the lottery. So it wouldn't matter, doesn't matter where you live, um, you wouldn't necessarily be going to the school that you think you're, you're going to. Lord Lucas, you, you write, you're writing about schools and looking at schools all over the country all the time, or you're pulling together the information. What do you think about all these, you know, postcode lotteries, real lotteries, banding, I think it, busing? It's very hard to make them work in a democracy. <laughs> to get people to vote for that. Uh, but it's it's been tried. Uh, if that's what people want to vote for, then then it's survivable. I think you to, to get continued consent, you need to allow schools to respond much more freely than they can to parents' wishes as to what the education is like. Uh, I think the fact that people who are not well off are prepared to pay £3,000 a year for James's school when they could have a free, a free education 
shows that parents really care about what's on offer. I think a lot of the time the school system doesn't listen to that. Uh, and you could, within a community, have a lottery. Uh, it starts to mean you can't go to the school next to you, uh, which makes for an awful lot of bussing people around. doesn't create a local community around the school because people are going to six different schools from wherever you live. Uh, I've not seen it work. Not, I don't think there's a solution along these lines. I think the solution along these lines is in making sure that the people who don't get the good stuff in starting life nonetheless get a good education uh, and not worrying about the fact that people who have an easy time in life do get a good education. It's let's look after the people who need it and not try and punish the people who, who are lucky. James, and then I'll come back to Ash. Yeah, I mean, it, it is a feature of state school systems the world over that they have zoning and that if you're stuck in that area, you have to go to the local school by and large. And it's a very negative feature, which I think you're agreeing with. Can I take you to poor areas of Nigeria, Ghana, India and so on? And, and what you find there is this extraordinary phenomenon of low cost private schools serving the majority of poor kids. But why I wanted to come to that was there you have competition among schools. And so you don't have to go to the local school, which is 10 metres from your door. You can go to the local school that's 15 metres or the local school that's 20 metres. Or, so you, you've got, you, you have small, I think small is beautiful as far as schools are concerned. So my utopian answer, which can't happen straight away, but perhaps in 50 years when we abolish the state system, is that you will have this plethora of private schools around or plethora of small schools and so you're not consigned to the school where you don't want to go and and um and schools can grow or or, or, or open new branches as as they see see fit small is beautiful um i wanted to um touch on the point about mental health actually um because I don't think this is, mental health issues are unique to the state school system or the fee-paying system. I think that fundamentally one of the biggest curses in the education system as a whole is that children are made to feel disposable. And children are made to feel that if they don't uh, meet certain standards, if their behavior is too challenging, if their academic performance isn't good enough, that they matter less, that they are cared for less, and that they are disposable, sometimes quite literally through suspensions and exclusions and so forth. But even though I know this is a, a very small section of fee-paying schools, it was only when I got to uni and I started meeting people who had attended boarding school that I realized just how messed up it was, right? That when you, we talk about children in the care system, right? To be separated from your parents at a very formative age, even if the, the background is very dysfunctional, the parents are unable to, to care for that child. And we go, that is a suboptimal result for that child be separated from your parents, sent away uh, into a care system which uh, sometimes, unfortunately, really doesn't care for that kid. But the minute when you slap a whacking great school fee on that same experience, you go, actually, you've done the very best thing you could possibly for that kid. Um, and this is something which I feel really strongly about, despite having zero direct experience of it myself, from having met people who had that experience of separation from their parents, who were sent away to school. And we all know school can be tough. You get bullied, you know, your body's changing, it's like a Greek play where the masks keep falling to the ground, it's very distressing, and also some really bad things can happen. Some really bad things can happen. That can happen whether you're at state school, that can happen whether you're at private school or boarding school. But 
when I was having my most difficult times as a teenager and I was having, you know, getting up to all sorts that I probably shouldn't have, I always knew where home was, always knew where mum was, and I knew that she would always be there no matter how late I got home to sort me out and put me right. In terms of people who attended boarding schools, and attended boarding schools because their parents really genuinely believed that was the best possible thing they could do for that kid, they didn't quite have that experience, and it followed many of them into adulthood and manifested in some really troubling ways in terms of mental health issues, problematic uh, substance abuse, so on and so forth. Um, and so that's something which I really want to, us to think about, which is the ways in which we assume doing right by your child is by putting them through the ritualistic cruelty of an elite system and messing them up just good enough that they can form a government. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, any other questions? Got one here. Our question is very brief. Uh, an easy compromise is for the state to make uh, tuition fee loans available to everybody like it does for the universities, uh, providing the opportunity for every kid to attend a private school if it meets their entrance criteria. I just want to know what's the panel's view on that and if it has ever been tried in this country. Isn't James trying to do that already? Isn't that your... I, I, I couldn't... But loans for schools, along like university loans, but for schools so people can buy private school education. So that, yeah, I... I've oh, given him an idea now. Oh, that's a great idea. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to do it for the University of Buckingham. We're trying to get loans so that you know we compete with the student loan company, which we know is grossly unfair, and have our own loan system. I was on the tube... Um, well, today, I was in London, yeah. And um, I saw an advert for independent school funding company. Is that what that company's doing? Is it funding loans for students? It's a great idea, yeah, thanks. Well, it sounds right. like it might. You don't pay many, any more ideas in the <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to respond to the idea of loans for school children to buy the private education? I think they I would want to see already, some actually. very solid evidence that, uh, that this was something that was going to produce a good return for, <laughs> for the parents. Uh, it's, I mean, by and large, parents who are paying fees would be very happy not to. Uh, and I think there's a lot of scope there for the, a great drive to, to change things and do better that uh, independent school parents would, would gather behind. No, I don't think people should go into debt for, for independent school fees. I think we should find ways of, uh, of, of making the alternative better. And re we, we need an integrated school system. We need to be one society. We're coming up for some horrific changes as, uh, as robots and artificial intelligence improve. We need to do that hanging together as a society, not with a separate elite. So, no. We, there are some, some big reasons for pushing in the sort of directions that we're talking about this evening, but I don't think it's by uh, randomly abolishing schools. I think it's by really focusing on improving education for the people who need it most. Okay. Ash? Um, I don't think that that debt loading pupils is a good idea, either for um, access to private education or for university education, for that matter. Um, I had a very different experience of university from people who I met who didn't have to go into debt 
in order to attend or didn't have to work um, while they're at uni to top up their maintenance loans. So no, I don't think it's a, it's a good idea from a, a, a justice perspective. And I also think that when we are in an age where education and income are becoming more and more decoupled, um, that it doesn't actually make economic sense either. You don't have that guarantee that you're going to have those high wages which pay off that. Um, loan. Instead, I think you're going to have an even more uh, debt-disciplined society than we already do, and I think that that is, um, to use a word that's come up a lot, corrosive. Um, I would take your idea and run with it, and I wouldn't call it a loan, I'd call it a voucher. So I'd, you know, maybe we could introduce the idea of the state gives every family, every child is, is guaranteed a voucher and they can take that voucher to the school they wish to, their school to be educated at. And, um, you know, it wouldn't be a loan, but um, maybe a different way of approaching education. F final thoughts. When I told some colleagues that I was coming to speak at the Private Education Policy Forum, they said, oh, you don't want to deal with those people. You don't want to deal with those. And I want to thank you for this really lovely debate we've had this evening, this well-mannered. I wasn't booed once, as far as I can see. And thank, th 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 thank, you for thank you for treating me with kid gloves. Thank, thank you very much for our speaking. Any final word from you two? Before I thank you all. I'm no, I just thank you all I'm for coming. It's so nice to do this with real people it is, isn't it? Oh. in the room in all three dimensions. So, so thank you for making it out. I'll give oh, a little shout out for the 93% club. Who 93% club, soon to be coming to the house. Yes! Doing, uh, doing some fantastic work. And thank you to Lord Lucas you, very Lord much Lucas. for coming with COVID. Well, I'm, I, I, it, as James said, this has been, this has been a most courteous and, uh, and interesting evening. I'm, I'm afraid I apologise, Ash Sakar. I'm not going to follow you on Twitter. I thought you were far too interesting to miss out on. <laughs> Okay. And just a hand as well for our chair who Thank did you. really well. Um, we've got the room till nine o'clock, so there's still wine and lemonade and white wine at the back. We're also then going to go into the pub. You're very welcome to join. But thank you all to you. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks a lot for listening back to that and to our chair and panel for taking part. If you'd like to support our work researching and debating UK private schools and private education, please head to www.pepf.co.uk. You can click support us to make a regular contribution to our work. You'll also get access to a monthly exclusive newsletter, including all the latest goings on in the private education world, exclusive opinion pieces and research explainers. And you'll also get information and tickets on future live events like the one you've just heard. Stay safe and hope to see you at our next event.